Send us your spirit, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word move, our hearts to accept the things that we hear. Purify our will to obey you in joy and in faith. This we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. So Jesus' fate and destiny are tied to this glorious city, the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had reached Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, just two miles before the east gate of the city. Even today, when you travel this journey by car, you make your way through these long, and uh, these big hills, through the sandy hills of Jericho, which is actually the lowest point on the face of the earth. About halfway up, you reach sea level. But from here, Jesus would still have had to ascend a pretty good climb, a pretty respectable mountain. And it's almost always dusty and hot. It seldom ever rains there. And this was the road that, of course, many of the Jews would have traveled on on their way to the Passover celebration. And so Jesus had gone on ahead, as this moment would be the climax of his public career. He'd been on this collision course with Jerusalem now for quite some time. The scripture says that once he set his direction southward toward Jerusalem, that he never wavered. He never veered off course. And so Jesus arrived at the summit, and the barren, dusty desert would have given way to the lush green of Jerusalem in the springtime. And so we're at the doorstep of Jesus' passion story, which is the story of his death. His life's journey has led him to this particular time as he approached the city's gates. And so his entry into Jerusalem was the beginning of the passion story that ultimately led to the darkest of days, the day we call Good Friday, the day of Christ's execution. Good Friday can only be good. Anyone ever wonder this? When I was a kid, I used to ask this question all the time. Why in the world is it called Good Friday? I could never understand that it's only good if we understand that it's through the cross that God would turn the wounds of one into healing for the world. And so Jesus' journey is coming to its end. He's arrived at this ultimate destination, Jerusalem, for the very last time in his life. The cross was rapidly approaching, and he had come to Jerusalem to die. And so the people of Jerusalem, they've been expecting a king sent by God who would rescue them and who would save them. But the crowds that greeted Jesus on that day had expectations that were a little bit different than what Jesus' expectations were. And so the Jews had visions of power and glory, the establishment of a political kingdom, and can you really blame them, being an oppressed people? They'd hoped that this king would rally them, that would lead them in a fight against their Roman oppressors, but Jesus chooses a different image, the image of this lowly donkey. That was the thing that he felt portrayed his understanding of Messiahship. But it was the palm branch that still won the day. In Jewish practice, the palm branch was something that was used to celebrate the victor. And so there's a great story, 165 years before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, there's this guy with a fancy name, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, Uh, He was a Syrian. He stepped up this campaign to completely eradicate Judaism off the face of the earth. 
He marched into Jerusalem. He plundered the temple. Uh, he abolished the Torah as the Jewish law, and he established a new order of worship, the cult of Baal. And so Judas Maccabees, who had a great nickname, his nickname was the Hammer, right? The Hammer, sounds like, like WWE or something. <laughs> he leads a revolt against these Syrian invaders with a group of farmers armed with spears. These uh, farmers with spears lead this successful guerrilla war against a well-armed and well-trained mercenary army of Syria. In three years, the Maccabees reclaim the temple, they dismantle the altar, they reestablish proper temple worship. And this is the festival of Hanukkah. And guess what? Palms were used at the temple rededication, and these Maccabean rebels minted coins with palm branches on them. And so the act of celebrating with palms was by no means neutral. This is a politically charged environment. The palm symbolizes Israel's national hopes. These national hopes are projected onto Jesus when he enters the city. And so the crowd is welcoming another Judas Maccabees. They're welcoming another hammer. That's what they are looking for, a liberator. And so they're pretty fired up. But if you notice, Jesus is somber. Jesus, once again, is misunderstood. He's come to Jerusalem to die, not to fight. And so a few short days, this crowd shouting hosannas would turn on Jesus. The shouts would become shouts of vile hatred. Every time I read this story, honestly, it's probably my favorite in all of Scripture, I'm surprised over and over and over again by this mob mentality, by the crowd's change of hearts, by how quickly they turned on Jesus, shocked by their evil hatred of this man of peace. But every time I look at the story more closely, what I notice is that Jesus wasn't surprised at all, like I am. When he reached the city's gates, he knew exactly what was coming. And he willingly entered through those gates for the likes of people like you and me. And so the story fast forward a few days in this face-off between the power of the gospel and the power of the state, between God and Rome, between Jesus and Caesar. This will actually define the next few centuries of world history. And so Pontius Pilate was the governor. He was known by his contemporaries as a greedy, inflexible, and cruel human being. We could go into a lot of good stories about him, but we'll save those for another time. From the day he first took office, he was at odds with the people that he governed, the Jews. And so at the trial of Jesus, we see a really different side of Pilate. The bully actually becomes a coward. It's to this man that Jesus is brought on Friday morning, the Passion Week, accused of setting himself up as a king. And so Pilate spoke seven things to Jesus. Interestingly enough, six of the seven things that Pilate said were questions. And this is intentional. Doubt is being introduced right from the beginning of the story. Pilate's skeptical. He knows that Jesus isn't this violent revolutionary leader. He knows he's not another Judas Maccabees. He knows that Jesus is not another hammer. 
And so he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? The nature of the question shows us that Jesus is being charged with a political crime for rebellion against the state as Caesar would tolerate no other kings. Jesus' answer is basically, well, those are your words, not mine. And he's in a pretty precarious spot. If he answers yes, the trial's over. Jesus is guilty. Jesus was the king of the Jews, but not quite in the way that Pilate thought. And so these are Jesus' final words before his death cry on the cross. And just like his entry into Jerusalem, once again, Jesus is misunderstood. Pilate gives Jesus another chance. He gives him another chance. The crowds have gathered together for the festival. They get to choose a release of a prisoner. A choice has to be made. At that moment, a famous prisoner, Jesus Barabbas, happens to be in the Jerusalem jail. He was a guy who was greatly loved and admired because he was one that was not afraid to use force against Rome. He was a brave patriot, a national revolutionary. He was just the kind of man that this crowd had hoped that Jesus would be. And so Jesus is a really common name in this time, but Barabbas, not so much. It's the name Barabbas to me that makes this story more interesting. Bar in Hebrew is son. Abba means father. So Barabbas means son of the father. This is really intentional. Son of the father. The Bible is making it clear (laughs) over and over again that there is only one son. Of the Father. And so it's setting up this pivotal question which Jesus, which son of the Father, will the people choose? Which son of the Father will go to his death? And which one will go free? The violent one or the nonviolent one? The political patriot or the one who would live by his own teachings to resist an evildoer? The crowd has to think on their feet which Jesus, son of the Father, holds the greatest promise for Israel's future. That's the decision these people were faced with. Pilate could hear the whispering voices in his own head. He knew Jesus, the Messiah, was innocent. Everyone knew that Barabbas was guilty. There was never any question about that. Pilate's own wife sent him a message, don't have anything to do with this innocent man's death. But Pilate is like clay in the hands of this mob. He's not a leader. He's not a commander of men. At that moment, he was nothing but a coward. Crucifying, I think, the two most heartbreaking words in all of Scripture. The crowd chose the wrong Jesus to set free. And the real son of the father they sent to the cross. Theologians actually have a term for this. They actually call this, and I didn't know this before. I learned this. They actually call it the Barabbas syndrome. And it's the penchant of God's people to choose the wrong Jesus over and over and over again. To choose the way of violence over the way of God's peaceful kingdom. And so Pilate says, then what should I do with this Jesus who's called the Messiah? Well, it's been said that a mob is a many 
headed monster, and this many headed monster is bloodthirsty, as many mobs are. They respond. And their response is meant to shock us. It's supposed to be horrifying. And we're supposed to ask the question how could they have done this? How could they have said the things that they said? They had lots of other choices available to them. They could have just said, who cares? Let him rot in prison. Do whatever you want with him. We, we really don't care. But that's not what happened. Something has gone horribly wrong. Just a short while ago, this same crowd had hailed Jesus as the king, and now they order Pilate to crucify him. It's so twisted, it's actually difficult to say those words. I don't want to be complicit with this mob. I don't want to accept any responsibility for their decision. I'm sure you don't either. But as we're going to see in a moment, part of our job is actually to find our face in this mob. And I think this is a really important step, something that Matthew really wants us to consider. So some try to make Pilate out as this innocent guy and the angry Jewish mob as the guilty party of the gospel writers don't allow that to happen. While Jesus is innocent, Pilate is as guilty as sin. All the soapy water in the world can't wash the blood of Jesus off this guy's hands. And so nobody in the story wants to take responsibility for Jesus' death. But what Matthew is trying to say is that the more we blame others, the more we indict ourselves. For centuries after this, after the death of Christ, Christians blamed the Jews for Jesus' death. Some horrific things happen in history because of this. But the finger-pointing game misses Matthew's point. Matthew wants each of us to see our own culpability here. And by the end of this section of scripture, he actually changes the Greek word from crowds plural to crowd singular. So that we know when we read this that we too can see our face in the crowd singular. It's very intentional. We're supposed to understand that we're guilty as well, and that Jesus was the only one who was truly innocent. But there is some really good news here. Listen carefully for the gospel. This is why Good Friday is truly good. And so Matthew wants us to understand that Barabbas represents an entire guilty and sinful humanity. But listen to this. When Jesus died, who went free? Barabbas went free. A guilty man went free. An innocent man went to the cross. When the innocent Jesus suffered, the guilty Barabbas walks away. When Jesus dies, sinners like you and like me, we're set free. This is completely lost on Pilate. And so the reason that the Bible stresses this point so much is really simple. It's only then that we could possibly understand that salvation is offered to all, to everyone, to absolutely everyone with no exceptions. What happened for Barabbas is the offer that's given to the entire world. For only if all are guilty can all be offered to be 
be set free. And so an innocent man took a guilty man's place. An innocent Jesus took a guilty world's place. An innocent Jesus took our place in order to allow us to go free. And I love this quote, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry. He said, Jesus was arraigned so that we might be discharged. Some people like to see Barabbas as a minor figure in the Passion narrative. I I really just couldn't disagree more. He's the only man in history that can truly say that Jesus was nailed to a cross with his name on it. The Gospel says we are Barabbas, that Christ took our place so that we might be set free. This is what Matthew is just begging us to understand. It's what the Passion of Jesus Christ is all about. And so when we leave today in worship, we're going to leave in a bit of a dark place. But if Jesus remained dead, we wouldn't be free at all. And so through the darkness of this most holy week, we anticipate the joy of being together here on Easter Sunday, a day we'll celebrate the death, uh, the death is defeated, the evil is overcome, a day where we will experience the offer of freedom and salvation. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, you are truly good. We marvel at the mystery of your word. We're amazed by a love that would willingly journey to Jerusalem in order to be nailed to a cross in place of a sinful humanity in order to set us free. We confess that sometimes we choose the wrong Jesus. That we put our trust and our faith in other things. God, but we trust in your grace, your grace that covers us, your grace that forgives us, your grace that loves us, your grace that sets us free. And so we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.